Welcome to Everything You Know About Disability is Wrong, a podcast by disabled people for disabled people. But if you're not disabled, stick around. You might learn something new. Hey, Lily. Hey, Erin. So in today's episode, we have a really important discussion. It's a bit different than the usual parent of a disabled child conversation because our guest also has a disability. Yeah, today's guest is the ever-so-talented Lindsay Rowe Parker. We met Lindsay a few weeks ago, and we knew immediately that we wanted to share her story on the podcast. Yeah, so when Lindsay found out her child is autistic, she reflected on the diagnosis by looking inward and discovering her own neurodivergence. Yeah, I get pretty emotional towards the end of today's episode. I think that Lindsay's commitment to honoring her own needs alongside of her child's needs are so important to me. And I will also say just a quick content warning that towards the end of this episode, there are mentions of self-harm. So if that's not your cup of tea today, come back a different day to listen to this episode. Yeah, and I think this conversation, parents and caregivers should really like listen to this one because it shows you how diagnosis and acceptance of that is so important for your child's well-being and your own well-being. It really, acceptance is a game changer. Yes, absolutely. Acceptance is such a big theme in this episode. And I think also curiosity in that Lindsay stayed curious instead of letting fear take over. And I think we see so much of that narrative of like parents finding out that their kid has a disability and just like feeling so terrified at what that means. And Lindsay, you'll hear in the episode, Lindsay, of course, addresses what it was like. And yeah, there's fear involved, but really she stayed curious. And I think that that is whether we're talking about neurodivergence or other disabilities or honestly, I think it's important also when you think about like finding out that your child is queer or finding out that your child is anything unexpected. I think that the way that Lindsay met her kids with such curiosity and a willingness to look at herself is just really incredible and is a really important thing. So let's get into the episode. Yay. Oh my goodness, you are such an inspiration. Wow, you really are. You're so strong. Can I pet your service doll? One, two, three, let's go! We are artists, parents, teachers, good guys, bad guys, students, leaders. I'm not your inspiration, yeah, I'm fully who I am. Got my own expectations that don't fit into your plans. I'm not your sad story, so I wrote it in this song. Everything you know about disability is wrong. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Everything You Know About Disability is Wrong. Today, Erin and I have the amazing Lindsay Rowe Parker with us, who is a children's book author, friend of Easter Seals, and all-around cool human. Thanks for coming on the show today, Lindsay. Oh, thanks for having me. So we like to start with the same thing every episode this season, which is that our... I forgot we were recording video. I um, <laughs> I started looking down. <laughs> and that's fine. I'm keeping this I in. I made a face. Because we're, we're authentic here on everything you know. 
So anyway, our podcast is called Everything You Know About Disability is Wrong. What do people get wrong about you? Oh, that is a good one. I think I want to come back. Can we come back to that one? Because I think all the other things that we're going to talk about probably will spark something that I have not thought about before. Because I don't think I've spent much time thinking about that before. Absolutely. Yeah, we can come back to it. It can be our closing question on this. So a little bit of background for our listeners. We met you, Lindsay, because you wrote a really cool book. Can you tell us a little bit about the book you wrote and what inspired you to write it? Yes. So I wrote Wiggle Stomps and Squeezes, Calm My Jitters Down. It started as just a a bunch of little vignette story ideas, interactions that I had with my daughter who is autistic and my son who is very likely neurodivergent. And I just kind of wrote about our life and things that happened during the day. I didn't start out to write a story about sensory differences or neurodivergence. But as I continued to write it, I was like, oh, that's what this is. And now looking back at that process, hindsight is usually 2020, right? It makes sense how it got to that place. But that's not, I didn't start out to do that. And so the experience over the last few years of creating the story, and now it's going to be a series, which I'm so, so grateful for, because it really, I think it hit a nerve with people. And kids and families could see themselves in that book in a way that hadn't been shown that often before. And I know there's a lot of great books about neurodiversity and neurodivergent characters and sensory differences now. And I think they're coming out at a very quick pace. And this will flow into something we're going to talk about in a little bit. But there's so much great content out there. And I just feel very grateful to be just one of those stories. Yeah, I think we sometimes feel that way about this podcast, too. There, there didn't used to be any disability representation at all. And we're starting to see, finally, we're getting some space. But I think that it's really crucial that we know that, like, there's no need to gatekeep it. You know, there's room for all of us because how many TV shows have very similar premises and are all about the same kind of people? You know, it's content doesn't necessarily there's no overflow like there's not too much of it because I think about like content creators on TikTok I only ever really want to watch a TikTok once (laughs) so (laughs) bring them all I want want all the all the content because I'm only going to experience it once and I know that Erin we've talked about this with social media advocacy that like we don't want people to be deterred because there's so much of it that actually means there should be more Mm -hmm. right exactly yeah I was just thinking, like, as far as just disability in literature and books, before recent times, a lot of disability content was written by people who were not disabled. And so, like, it's very important to have that authenticity because people's perceptions, based on what they read, changes who they are. That's the amazing thing about literature, about reading, is how it changes you. And to have authentic voices is so important for disability rights, disability inclusion, and all of that. So I'm just really happy, Lindsay, that you made these books because that's really amazing. And so important. I could listen to you talk about literature all day. It makes me really happy to see you talk about that. I feel 
You're not autistic, but it does feel like a special interest of yours. <laughs> I, yes, yes. Definitely. Definitely. That's actually a really great transition because, Lindsay, specifically, I really wanted to have you on the show because I think that from what I know of your story, which listeners I'll have her explain, don't worry. From what I know, you are a really great example of when disability entered your life as a parent, you decided to look inward as well and see yourself. So, you know, when we talk about representation, you wrote this book as the parent of an autistic child, but also as a neurodivergent person yourself. So I'd love to just get into that conversation about what your journey was like, what it was like when your kids were diagnosed or when you started to see all of that jazz. Mm -hmm. So I think I have, the beginning of my story I think is pretty similar to a lot of other parents who go through a diagnosis process. You know, I started to see some differences in my child next to other children. We weren't hitting milestones, we weren't doing those types of things. And so I went to get her assessed. And through that whole process, I feel like I I don't know how I ended up in the neurodiversity and neurodivergent space instead of some of the other spaces for autistic people. But I was so lucky that I didn't necessarily need to unlearn a lot because I got to learn right away about neurodiversity and neurodivergence. Sorry, all my things are dinging. Hopefully that's not that's messing okay. everything up. I did have to unlearn some of my own personal biases that I didn't even know that I had. But now learning more every single day about this, I'm like, oh yeah, I have a lot of them. Not only about disability in general, but about myself. And so that was definitely a, that's that's an everyday journey, every moment, you know? But going through that process, getting Hazel diagnosed, and then starting services, we got paired up with an occupational therapist who was life-changing for me and for my daughter too. But when we signed up for therapy for her, I was thinking it would be for her. It's for her. I will just sit back and watch and, you know, all that kind of like, oh, okay, it's her therapy. And then I realized that it's not, it was not just for her. It was for the family. It was for those who love her to understand her. And being so wrapped up into it and a part of it and experiencing it and then realizing, wait a minute, all these things are the same things that I have been struggling with my entire life. And I, at that point, I still didn't know that I was neurodivergent until I got into an automobile accident. And I honestly, I, I had, I think, burnout. I did neuropsychological testing and assessments because I was like, I don't know what's going on. And came back with the diagnoses of depression, anxiety, PTSD, and ADHD. And I was not necessarily so surprised with the depression and anxiety. Because at that point, like, I was feeling it really intensely. What surprised me was the ADHD. Which, again, hindsight shouldn't have surprised me. Because when I told my family members and my friends, oh my gosh, I got diagnosed with ADHD. They were like, oh yeah. We all knew that. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> what? You did? Like, am I the only one that didn't know? <laughs> and so, you know, it's kind of funny, but at the same time, it was sad 
to know that all those things that I had internalized my entire life of not being able to do this right or being lazy or not paying attention or not applying yourself or all those things that you get told, whether that's by actual people telling you or just signals from community, society, what have you, you fill in those gaps. And that wasn't my real story at all. That was just a story that I made up for myself. And so that is one piece that I really wish I would have known at a younger age. But at the same time, like somebody asked me if I was mad about it, mad at my parents for not telling me and mad, you know, and I was like, no, I understand if somebody feels mad, but at the same time, I think at that point, they didn't have all the tools and the information and the access to things that, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to have now. And so they did the best that they knew how to do. So I don't, you know, there's no anger at them, but it is a little bit of a sadness for the little girl that I was. So, yeah, I mean, I, I relate to so much of that. I think that it is funny. Like there's that funny level of, as I had the exact same experience where, you know, I felt there were people that I was so nervous to tell. I was like, oh gosh, <laughs> what if they tell me that I'm not what they think autism looks like, or they think I'm lying. And I just wrote all these narratives and then I'd tell them and they'd be like, yeah, that tracks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and it was like, oh, and at first it was like, oh, wow, that's funny. This is hilarious. And then it was grief. It was like, oh, wow, all of these people could see this, could see these things about me. And like you said, I was writing these narratives that I just wasn't trying hard enough or wasn't good enough. And I think that there's all of that to balance along with also what you said about how now is a pretty great time to be finding out you're neurodivergent because we have neurodiverse affirming communities that understand that this is how brains work and where neurodiversity is everywhere. And I, I do sometimes wonder about the social aspects of autism of like that autistic people are bad at socializing. There's a part of me that's like, well, that's because a lot of my autistic friends who were diagnosed at a young age were like, entirely removed from their classmates immediately so if you're taken away from all your classmates at an early age how are you going to learn to be social and you know so which is not to say that that wasn't the the best we could do at the time but now is an okay time so there's so many feelings in that accepting a diagnosis but I have to say as a youngest person who is like understanding my own brain it is so beautiful for me to hear you finding this out about your child and going on a journey with her because that, I mean, that moment when you just said you thought it was therapy for her, but it was for all of you. I think that that is, if there's anything people take who might from this episode of that have neurodiverse children, like that is just a golden nugget immediately. Like that's perfect right there. That, that understanding that your child can't go through this alone. And then also that, you know, Autism, neurodivergence in general, it doesn't, it's not born in a vacuum. It comes from somewhere. So I think that there are a lot of people that should look inward and don't necessarily. And I think there's also, it's kind of scary to admit that neurodivergence does come from somewhere because I think that there are quite a few people who still have such stigmas about disability that then would not want to consider that their child might be autistic because the thought that they might be neurodivergent is too much. So what was your acceptance journey like and like finding out 
about yourself, but also your daughter. And what's that been like? How have you found self-acceptance? So initially with my daughter, I was counseled by people close to me to not share. Again, don't talk publicly about it. You should just not make it an excuse. Not And, and I, I know where they were coming from. But at the same time, I was like, that's not going to be our story. I never want my child to feel any shame for who she is and how her brain works or anything about herself. And so I said, thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> and again, like I, like I said, I was so lucky to find the neurodiversity affirming community so early on in my journey that it just, it felt relieving. There was a lot of stuff that I was like voraciously reading and some of it I was like, oh gosh, I don't want any part of that. But then once I found mostly autistic adult voices, I was like, oh, and it's so silly to not realize. And I, I mean, I had this exact thought. I was like, how did I not realize that autistic children turn into autistic adults? But I didn't, it never occurred to me. And so now that I know that, and I, I'm friends with a lot of autistic people now, I have a lot of them in my life. My illustrator and my partner in the book series is autistic. And it's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, this is such a vibrant community of people, creators, parents. You can be neurodivergent in any of those spaces. And it's just, I'm just happy that I'm, I get to be a small part of it. Yeah. I think it's so important. And, you know, I'll take even a step further. I think that with disability in general, we have so many views that are, it's an adolescent thing. Kids deal with it. And I know, Erin, you experience a ton of infantilization because people just don't assume that you're oh, yeah. an adult, if you want to talk on that. No, they don't think I'm an adult. Like, okay, so I have a YouTube channel where I talk about reading and books. That's my interest. And YouTube turned off my comments because they thought I was a child. And I just turned 40 years old. So, like, that is just one thing. But, like, my entire life, everyone assumes I'm a child or that I have, like, I don't lead a quote-unquote normal life. And that's really damaging. And... What Lindsay said about, like, finding community is so important to validate yourself. Because when you're in a room with all disabled people, you do feel validated. And, like, you can just be yourself. Which is why I love this podcast. It is great. It is wonderful to have a space like this. And... For so many different reasons, so many people with many different disabilities experience that same thing, that infantilization, that people will always try to compliment me on my like eccentric personality <laughs> by saying like, you're so childlike, you're so playful. And I know they mean it in a kind way, but ultimately I have no shame in saying that I am disabled and as a disabled person... Don't freaking compare me to a kid. <laughs> like, no disabled person. That's, you know what? This is an important moment of everything you know about disability is wrong. Do not, if you're listening to this and you know nothing about disability, if you ever think that it's a good idea to comment on the childlike nature of someone who is disabled, maybe just file that back as a thought instead of a spoken aloud thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Because I really think it's it's well-meaning, but people don't realize how often childhood is, especially for neurodivergent kids, actually, no, for disabled kids, childhood is a lack of autonomy in a lot of ways, and disability can feel like a lack of autonomy sometimes, so we don't need to compound that. <laughs> I just am so moved by everything you say, Lindsay, and I think that you're... I wanted to say your kids are so lucky, but I, I actually hate that that's kind of true. I wish that all neurodivergent kids were met with as much acceptance as you have given your children. And I think that all of the ways that my parents accepted me, even though we didn't have a diagnosis for me, my parents just kind of accepted that. I think, you know, we when I was a kid, it was the like highly sensitive child was kind of the phrasing that was used. And my parents chose to talk about it. And I knew that my parents' friends knew I was highly sensitive. And there definitely would have been times that I wanted them to hide that. And I think you made the the smarter choice as a parent saying that like, no, I refuse to hide who I am or who my kid is because then she'll just learn to hide forever. And I think that the ways in which my parents did not allow me to hide really have allowed me to thrive as an autistic adult. And that is important to remember that disabled kids become disabled adults. <laughs> So I think that's just really incredible. I love what you said, that your parents didn't let you hide because so often disabled kids um, by the system, the systems in place, are sheltered and not in the community. So that having supportive parents like that is crucial to your self-worth and self-understanding. And it makes me sad that a lot of kids don't have that. Yeah, I agree. Erin, I always think about, I think this is a season one episode where you talked about getting your wheelchair for the first time and zipping around doing your chores way faster <laughs> than before. Yeah. And like that, that's sort of the phrasing of the way you said that just makes me so happy because that is so on topic of everything we're talking about. Just like accepting your kids as they are and holding them to the standards that you would hold them to and... Here's a, an interesting one. Accountability as well is a hard topic to discuss because I know that I, to be fair, my parents didn't know that I was autistic. I didn't get, I didn't find out until I was in my 20s. But I mean, it was very hard to tell me no when I was a kid. And I would, now looking back, I can see I was having a lot of meltdowns. And I was a pretty spoiled kid at certain times. And I think that I thought that I was always going to get my way because my meltdowns were scary and my parents didn't know what was going on. So they didn't want them to be happening. So they'd just be like, uh, just let her get her way to avoid that. So how old is your daughter? Mine, she's almost eight. Cool. How do you handle like accountability or how do you talk about stuff like that? I mean, this is just my own pure interest, I think. <laughs> well, I had to throw out all of my traditional parenting expectations. <laughs> I was raised with traditional parenting, whatever that means to, you know, you or, but it was you respect your parents and you, you know, don't talk back, all those things, which I still want that for her. But at the same time, I don't even know how to phrase this. I don't not hold her accountable, but I don't hold her to the same standard as I hold an adult because she's still a child and she's still learning and so when I expect something of her or I want some kind of behavior or something from her and she's not able to do that I don't punish her I try and find out why and what's happening 
with her. And sometimes that can look really permissive and like I'm just letting her have her way. But I, I feel like it's more of being respectful of her as a human and finding out what the heck is going on instead of drawing a hard line in the sand and saying, you better make this line. Otherwise, you're going to get any kind of repercussion. It's more of like, what's going on? Like, can we talk about this? Can we connect? And I do get a little bit of pushback <laughs> from people outside and they're mostly my, you know, immediate family. They're like, well, you need, you need to be a little stricter. And I'm like, I don't think that's what she needs. I think she needs connection more than she needs rules. Yeah. And it's not always easy and I don't always do it right. But every time that I don't listen to my gut and I go with what I think traditional parenting should do, it backfires every single time. But if I stop for a minute, like I need to regulate myself first, always. If I regulate myself and my emotions and what I'm feeling and set those aside for a minute and then go and figure out what's going on with her, it always, always turns out better. And it can look on the outside like it's permissive, like I said, but I have seen the benefits of choosing one over the other. Certainly. And I think it's important. It might look permissive or what I should do. I think those are such common neurodivergent thought processes of like should, should lives rent free in my brain. And what does this look like is a constant worry. But I think that you're doing the right thing there for sure. I, I recently I have a little bit of a hard time going to bed, which I think is a pretty common neurodivergent thing. I actually recently watched a video about how like people with ADHD tend to pass out rather than fall asleep, <laughs> which I really agree. I really felt that. <laughs> and I really felt that. And in talking about that, they're talking about like the sequential order of bedtime and how that can be really hard for specifically autistic kids who struggle with sequential order, which is a thing that I as an adult still really struggle. Like going to bed sometimes is really difficult because I know it means I have to first change into pajamas and then put on my skincare and then brush my teeth and then wash my and get in. And there's so many steps to it that it just feels impossible. And I was thinking about that and I was hit with this memory where when I was younger, I used to fall, like get really tired on the couch. And then I would tell my mom, I need to go to bed right now. <laughs> and it became a thing where it was like, she would wait until I would say it. And as she would say it, she would turn off all the lights. She'd gather everything possible. She'd like hand me my toothbrush on the way up. And I would like brush my teeth as I was walking up, hit the bed and fall asleep. <laughs> and when I was a little bit older, I think I recently actually was like, well, maybe I have a hard time going to bed because my mom did stuff like that for me. Like that was permissive and she should have just made me go to bed. But now I have a hard time going to bed because I'm autistic. And a lot of autistic people struggle with in insomnia. And actually that was her accommodating me. And like looking back, I see that, sure, it might have looked like it was permissive or that she was letting me do whatever, but I'm still super autistic. I'm 25 years old. I have a loving, supportive community and a job. So like she did something, right? <laughs> like, you know, I maybe it was permissive, but it was what I needed. So I hearing you say that is like just so affirming to my, my little autistic heart. I I'm just so happy for your daughter. I'd love to hear just specifically. So this season, originally, we were talking about work and employment, but we've kind of just allowed it to be a full season of everything you know about disability is wrong. And that's the theme. But on the topic of work, what accommodations have you made for yourself since getting diagnosed? 
this one's so fun to talk about, I feel like, because if we back up and talk about acceptance, right? I had such an easier time accepting accommodations for my daughter and, and also now my son than I have accepting accommodations for myself or asking for them because I still am struggling with giving myself grace for things that are part of my neurodivergence after, you know, I'm 41 years old now. And so I've had a lifetime of overcompensating. And so this is actually what I'm going to go back to about what you, what people get wrong about you is that on the outside, I usually look really buttoned up because that's overcompensation from 40 years of being scatterbrained and getting in trouble. And so I have figured out ways for myself to make it look on the outside like I have all of my ducks in a row all the time. I definitely do not. And I struggle with that at home when I'm in my safe space and I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) But for the first time, I just started a a new job at a a big nonprofit that I absolutely love. And I did. I finally asked for some accommodations for the first time ever. And it was hard to do it because I was not even sure if I needed them. And I'm still not sure if I need them. But when I do, I want them to be available to me so I don't burn myself out again like every you know, it happens all the time. And so I think being okay with asking for help is something that I'm not good at. And I never have been. And I, th- and I think that again, is from overcompensating for a long time. If that answered the question, I think I went on a tangent. <laughs> no, it does answer the question. And it's also, I think it's really important for disabled kids to hang out from a young age of many different disabilities, because it is in my disabled friend communities where I have learned that my own hesitation for accommodation is my own internalized ableism. And, you know, I, I would never ask a friend who needed a ramp to enter a building to just power through, just power through the stairs. I would never do that. But I find myself being like, just power through this meltdown. Don't let anyone know what's going on. Just power through it. And I think that it has been very beneficial for me to call out my own ableism in that and say like, hey, if my disability were external facing, would I be asking this same thing? But because it's just me up in my brain having this conversation with myself, am I going to gaslight myself (laughs) and tell me that it's not real? So I think I totally understand that. And I just think asking for accommodations is, it's just not as simple as people make it out to be. No. I know, like, for me, like, obviously I have a physical disability that requires accommodations. But, like, my anxiety, I have anxiety. So I always feel weird asking, like, for time or to step away. But with our team here at Easter Seals, it's a lot easier because everyone on our team pretty much has a disability. But, like, yeah, there's definitely a hesitation about asking for accommodations, for, like, mental health. Because you do have that internalized ableism a little bit. Like, are people going to think I'm faking it? just to get away from work. So it's it's like, it's hard to navigate. But I'm getting used to it. Yeah, I think that's such a 
important point. Like our team that Aaron and I work on is by far the most accommodating team I've ever been on. And like, I feel quite certain if I were to ask for certain accommodations, well, I have, I have asked for certain accommodations and they've been met really wonderfully and just so supportive. And still it terrifies me to think that I might need to ask for other ones. And I think that if you happen to be a a people manager and you're listening to this, it's important to understand like how scary it is to ask for accommodations and how I actually don't know if I would have asked for the accommodations that have been life changingly helpful in my life since this starting this job. I don't know if I would have if the other people on my team hadn't immediately when I started been like, Hey, we're here to support you. Let us know what we can do. And just that simple phrase was so important and opened a door for me to ask for help. And I think that's just super duper important. And you know what? Actually, this relates back on, I think that your book, the reason it was so moving to me is because it shows how acceptance can tend to be the most important accommodation to begin with, to accept like, hey, I need you to accept that the way I do this is going to look different than what you think. And, you know, I even think about, I'm playing with this toy while we're filming and I'm like, oh no, we're filming, but (laughs) no, I'm not going to be ashamed of that. That's the whole point of this this (laughs) podcast. And, you know, I was really nervous. I I didn't want to do video at all the first season and we didn't because I was so scared of like, I, I tend to like raise my shoulders a lot and I, you know, wiggle, stomps and squeezes. I'm wiggling, stomping, I'm doing stuff. And I think that your book is really awesome for that reason, just to let, you know, I let adults who are reading it to their kids <laughs> kind of be learning alongside the kid that's learning as well. Like, hey, there's actually nothing that needs to be changed about my child stimming. I can just let them self-regulate. It's actually okay, which is no shade to the parents who who thought that it was something that had to be fixed. We live in a pretty scary society where it can be really scary to be different. And we've seen over and over again, based on the mini-isms that exist in society, that being different can mean danger, actually. It can mean just straight up danger. So every time I talk about acceptance, I also want to be wary of that. It's a lot easier to say, accept differences when you aren't thinking about the way that, you know, maybe what is the different danger level for letting a young white child stim in public versus a young black child who is unfortunately often when young children of color are stimming, it's seen as dangerous. And that's, that's super important to why I think we need to talk more about what neurodiversity looks like and what autism looks like. And so we can see that people who are behaving in a way that you might call erratic or you might call weird is nothing to be scared of because when people are scared it's not good for anyone involved that was quite a ramble but I'm interested what is your next book you said it was becoming a series can you tell us about the school version yes so wiggle stops and squeezes calming my jitters at school is the same child just in a school setting and so it follows very much the same kind of pattern of those sensory experiences as well as one thing that was really important for myself and my illustrator when we did the first book is um, I got a lot of feedback that it was too quiet of a story, that there wasn't like this big dramatic thing and that we needed something dramatic. And 
And I mean, there is a point in the story where the child, you know, has sensory overload, but that's not the focal point of the story. That's one moment in it. And the child is able to, with support, regulate through that. We wanted my illustrator, Rebecca Burgess, who is incredible. We really wanted this to be representative of supportive adult figures also. And so I kept going until I found somebody that would publish it without having some big drama or need to. It felt exploitive what they were asking me to do. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Like this story is representative as is without having some big drama thing happen in it. And it's more representative of like an actual day in a kid's life instead of like not every single day is going to be some like... Um, and so the second one follows kind of that same feel, you know, it's very, all the adults in the, in the second one are very supportive. They, they empower the child. They have strategies in place for the child. So there's no like weird teaching in it. It's just like, you're basically like moving through the story together with support, if that makes sense. And I'm really, really excited for this one because it is in a school setting and kids spend a lot of time at school and it's not always a pleasant experience for a lot of neurodivergent kids and disabled kids in general. And so this one, I hope it quietly shows, you know, educators or parents or maybe folks who are not quite as um, attuned to that neurodiversity affirming kind of approach that they can have impact and still they don't have to hold so tightly i guess you don't have to like control so much like let the kid lead and they'll show you what they need if you listen to them yeah absolutely and i think that's that's crucial because i think that a lot of teachers unintentionally become disabled kids first bullies because they don't understand the need for autonomy. And like we've said, autonomy being taken away is just such a familiar thing. So I think that your book is really important. And I think that I'm excited for teachers to read it and just be able to understand a little bit more like what we were talking about with the permissive parenting, that you're not being a permissive teacher by letting letting a kid run around who needs to run around instead of being in a desk all day. It's okay. I think that's really wonderful. I want to talk more about the awesome community of other writers that you have created. But before we do that, just want to take a quick second and go to break. Yeah, we'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Easter Seals. You know, we work for Easter Seals, but maybe our listeners don't know what that is. Easter Seals is leading the way to full access, equity, and inclusion for disabled people and their families. And we've been doing this for more than a century. This includes helping disabled people find meaningful employment and addressing healthcare needs for all ages. We're proud to serve communities across the country and ready for the next hundred years. For more, check us out at easterseals.com. So Lindsay, Let's talk about the community of writers that you created. What was that like, and why did you decide to do that? So I joined a lot of groups on Facebook, just, again, voracious for information. 
and not only neurodivergent groups, autistic groups, parenting groups, but then also children's literature groups or, or kid lit groups. And being in all those kind of spaces simultaneously, I kept seeing some threads going through and I was like, wait a minute. I'm new in both of these spaces, but there are other people in here that are both neurodivergent. They are also children's book authors. They're creators, they're illustrators, whatever their medium is. And there are stories coming out. Like they're starting to like really churn out. And so I started reaching out to them for full disclosure. I used to do a lot of influencer work in other jobs. So it's kind of like in my blood, I couldn't not do it. And so I was like, hey, I buy your book. I love your book. Do you want to do a campaign with me? All you need to do is give me a quote about why these books are important for kids and I will show your book and I will show your, your headshot and I'll promote it during Sensory Differences Month or Sensory Processing Awareness Month, which is October. And every single person that I have reached out to was like, yeah, absolutely. So the response was great. And I think the first year, I think it was maybe 2020, I did it the first time I had like 10, which I thought was great. I was like 10 or 11, something like that. It was 10 plus is what I called it. And this year I did take kind of a break last year because I moved. But this year, I think we have over 20 something now. And so they're just incredible creators, mostly with children's books about sensory differences, just because there are just so many books out there right now that deal with neurodivergence. I kind of wanted to keep it a little more focused. Otherwise, I think I would be all over the place. But there's a great group of really passionate and caring people who just want to get stories that are authentic to kids with sensory differences out into into the space. And I think one of the biggest challenges that I have with my books is like accessibility as far as like distributing them. People can buy them, but I also want it to go to people who may not know about them or can't find it or just don't know what they don't know, don't know that these resources are available to them that don't know that there are all these stories from neurodivergent creators that highlight positive experiences that their kids will understand and, and feel and see themselves in. And so I just couldn't not do it just because <laughs> that publicist influencer part of my life is really strong. So and I also wanted all these folks to know that like we're not competition for each other. We amplify each other, we share each other's stories, and there's absolutely room for so, so, so many more stories. So that's kind of how that came to be. And, you know, it's still in its infancy, but it's growing and I'm excited about it. I love how specific it is, the sensory differences, like the or sensory processing is the main focus of it. I like how specific it is. And how even in such a specific topic, there's not a need for competition because sensory overwhelm is such an intense feeling. The thought of being able to read any book about it while I'm a kid, getting to understand what those feelings are, oh, it makes me genuinely choke up thinking about it because I'll, I'll be just frank about it. Sensory overload led me to some pretty intense self-harm when I was a teenager and I think that there are a lot of 
people out there, especially I think about teenage girls who struggle with self-harm and have never put together the sensory overload state of that. Because for me personally, there's no feeling that feels quite as out of control as sensory overload. I mean, it just, it feels like I'm falling out of an airplane. I often tell people that when I'm in sensory overload, it feels like my blood and my bones are too big for the body that they're in. And now I can recognize that feeling, the falling out of an airplane, that my body and bones are too big. I can recognize that. And it actually is as simple as sometimes I just need to like shake it out or sometimes <laughs> I need to scream or sometimes I need to change shirts. <laughs> and, but without that understanding, something that could have been fixed with a fidget toy became dangerous and became like genuine danger to my body. And I think that, oh, learning from a young age about what sensory overload feels like is just so important and what you can do. So I just, I think all of that is just to say thank you for the work you're doing to make these books more public and to make more people read these books, just like genuinely from the bottom of my heart. And this is literally not me thanking you, but my teenage self. Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> you're gonna make me cry <laughs> I think it's really incredible work and I think it's really important now I'm like in my feels but <laughs> that's all you know I've put a lot of words into what I think the importance of your book is but I'd love to get your own your own phrasing on it what is your ultimate goal what narratives are you hoping to change with your book one of the things I I write in like every book is that the world is better because you're in it and not because of what you can do, what you can produce, what milestones you meet. None of that. It's better just because you're here. You don't have to accomplish anything. You don't have to meet anyone else's expectations. Like you have value just as you are. And so I know that sounds all like mushy and feely, but that's truly like, I feel like that's what everybody really needs and wants. Like you're not expected to to do anything or be anything other than just who you are. So I want kids and, you know, they're the people who love them when they read this and they see these interactions and they say, hey, that's just like me. And it's a, a happy and there's a little challenge in it in the storyline, but it's nothing that is not overcome. And you have value just as you are. I mean, I think that is... That's my bottom line. That's what I want my kids to know. No, I love that because in the disability space, there's a lot of shame about not being able to do something, not being able to be as productive. But just existing is enough. And even in advocacy, existing is resisting. And it's just... Like, you're enough. That's it. And I think a lot of people need to hear that. Because it's, especially in today's society of, like, social media and all of that, you're bombarded with all these messages of do something, be creative, whatever. But no, just exist. That's it. What a beautiful message for this episode. I think that that is, oh, it's just so beautiful. It really is. It is resistance to be okay with your own existence and to reject what comes so naturally in capitalism (laughs) that like my worth is my productivity 
and you know, I, I said this earlier about something else, but I think that for me, seeing my own internalized ableism has helped me get through kind of that kind of stuff that it ultimately, ultimately that feeling of you got to do is pretty ableist, is rooted in a lot of practices and thoughts that cause the isolation of disabled people that we've talked about so many times on this show. I think that's an absolutely brilliant thing to end on it. I feel like there's, this is just the perfect way to end the episode on this topic of that just exists. It's enough. (laughs) I love that. Lindsay, I want to come back to the initial question, just in case you have anything else you want to add on that. Is there anything you want to add in terms of our podcast is called Everything You Know About Disability is Wrong? What do people get wrong about you? Just because if you don't see it and you don't experience it, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> That's absolutely right. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I agree. What a wonderful episode. What a wonderful conversation. What a wonderful human you are, Lindsay. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Yes, thank you. It was amazing. I mean, I could make this podcast last hours by just talking about how how wonderful I think you are and how parents make all the difference when they're supportive. And it's really, really important. So thank you. Thank you for just existing. Lindsay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you guys too. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. This has been a super wonderful episode and we'll see you next week with, well, that's wrong. We'll see you next time (laughs) on everything you know about disability is wrong. Even just listening to that again has me back in my feels. I know, such a great, great conversation. We've had such an amazing exploration of neurodiversity in these first two episodes and I'm just so grateful for this space. And really excited for the rest of the season as we get into other disability types, be it other invisible disabilities, other physical disabilities, we'll get into it. We've got a whole season. It's going to be wonderful. I know, and I think everyone's going to be really excited to see who's coming up next. I'm very hyped. I can't wait. Me too. We've had such incredible guests and the guests keep on coming. They are incredible. It's going to be an amazing season. Stick around. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to write a review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time when we discuss more reasons why everything you know about disability is wrong. Everything you know about disability is wrong!